dominant ethnicity. Over the last century, both nationalist and communist governments have tried to counter this ethnocentricity, embracing a definition of national citizen that included non-Han peoples as well. This new usage gained some traction at official levels, but in daily life, Chinese has continued to be understood implicitly as Han. A Han family living in Singapore or San Francisco, for example, is regarded as Hua Chao, meaning Chinese abroad, even after several generations. But nobody would think to use that term to refer to a Uyghur from Xinjiang who has moved to Samarkand in Uzbekistan. In the unlikely event that a Caucasian baby were adopted by Chinese parents and raised in China, the child would not easily be thought of by locals as Chinese. But a Han baby, adopted and raised in the United States, is normally regarded by both Chinese and American communities as one of us. Throughout most of China's history, the traditional moral political model was able to withstand or absorb outside influences. Buddhism came from India. Mongol and Manchu invaders swept in from Inner Asia, and traders from the Near East arrived along the Silk Road and by sea. But the system held fast. Chineseness was too powerful to be dislodged. It was the invaders who adapted. The arrival of the industrialized West, however, broke the pattern. When the British armed with advanced cannons, won a series of starkly unequal battles along the Chinese coast in the mid-19th century, China was shocked in an unprecedented way. Feelings of humiliation grew even stronger at the end of the century when Japan, a little brother civilization in the traditional Confucian world, but one that had cleverly learned the Westerners' tricks, defeated China in another quick and one-sided war. Chinese leaders recognized the need to change, albeit reluctantly, and ever since, their mantra has been, do what is necessary to rebuff the outsiders, but only what is necessary, keeping Chineseness intact otherwise. One of the first responses by the Chinese to the British cannons was to upgrade their own. But to do that, China needed Western science. And to get that it needed Western schooling, which meant learning Western languages and traveling abroad. This seemed a slippery slope. The core of Chineseness might fade away. Some Chinese thinkers in the early 20th century went so far as to call for scrapping the traditional model and opting for all-out Westernization. But most stopped short of that. Mao Zedong, for one, used the slogan, foreign things for China's use, with China, by implication, retaining its core identity. Meanwhile, the modern world kept coming. Electricity, textile mills, rail and air travel, finance, diplomacy, computers, the Internet, and more. China did not really have a choice about whether to let these things in, even though some of them undermined established patterns. Having to pay lip service to words such as democracy while continuing to resist what they actually meant led to hypocrisy. Mao called his rule a people's democratic dictatorship and claimed that it was administered through 
democratic centralism. Such language was an attempt to continue the traditional authoritarian model under a fashionable modern label. But other Chinese took the new words and concepts at face value. Early 20th century thinkers, such as Hu Xi and Lo Longji, embraced Western notions of democracy and citizen rights, as did more recent figures, such as the late astrophysicist Feng Liji and the Nobel Peace Prize laureate Lu Xiaobo. Ordinary Chinese people, too, have moved in this direction. The notion that everyone has rights has spread widely in recent decades. In Mao's time, simply pronouncing the phrase people's rights in public was dangerous. Today, even farmers in small towns organize to assert their rights. The change has been gradual, but it is real.